This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Saves the day. Yes, I can hear the screaming from your iPods and iPhones. Back on EVR, Chris, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. So I want to start, obviously, from the beginning. This is typical. What was that band? What was that person that got you into music and you said, this is is it. This is what I want to do. Good good question. I, uh, I started off playing cello when I was six years old. And uh, I played in orchestra, and so I was just, like, in the traveling school band, and we'd go and do concerts at other schools and stuff. And I was strictly playing classical music. And um, I played for seven years, so by the time I was 13, I had, you know, started to uh, listen to Led Zeppelin and um, other classic rock like that. And uh, the classical music didn't feel that, that fun, and I didn't want to practice my cello anymore. And so I remember uh, the specific moment where the like switch went on. I was listening to Stairway to Heaven on repeat, just over and over and over. I was on a road trip with my dad and uh, sitting next to him in the car, and I just had this like epiphany. Oh, my gosh, I want to play drums. And uh, the moment uh, in the song, that made me feel that is when John Bonham enters. And it's a very simple feel how he enters the song is almost unspectacular, but to me it was magic and it just inspired me. And I just wanted to play drums. I didn't even know where that was coming from. I've never had a moment where I thought to myself, gee, I want to be a rock star. That'd be really cool. Um, but I do really like music. And so I was just flipping out on Led Zeppelin and following this inner urge but so my dad said, you know, uh, let me think about it. And then later on, you know, he thought about it and he said, drums might be a little loud. We lived in a pretty remote area. 
and um, the neighbors would have heard it like three miles away. So he uh, compromised and got me a classical guitar, and I taught myself Stairway to Heaven and uh, just started, I mean, living with that guitar, every moment with that guitar. And that's where it all began. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, such an iconic song where my memories of Stairway is holding some girl's hips, you know, and getting, uh, right. you know, but yours <laughs> yeah, is, <laughs> yeah, yours is, this is, uh, this is it. That's great. Was it, was it classic rock first? Did it, did it turn into, I want to start playing, you know, was it like Jawbreaker? Like what kind of, when did yeah, you, you know, when did you move a, from classical to the journey. rock? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Why well, I think Led Zeppelin was the band that really sparked my own like inner need to play music um, because like when I'm doing the classical stuff, I'm playing other people's music, but I think I wanted to make my own listening to Led Zeppelin because they were using a lot of those classical chords and modes that my brain, my subconscious was just familiar with. And it wasn't like I was listening to other classic rock bands like uh, Leonard Skinner or something like that stuff. I just don't like. Um, it just doesn't do anything for me. The two classic rock bands that really, really blew my mind when I was a kid uh, was Led Zeppelin and uh, Aerosmith, actually. The 70s records of Aerosmith are phenomenal. And what I noticed from them now is that um, all that classical music um, in those records. I mean, Steven Tyler grew up underneath his dad's piano listening to these incredible composition. So uh, that pulled me into rock. And then once I was into rock music, then I started listening to other bands with loud guitars, and I really didn't like anything. There was very little that grabbed me. But I remember feeling at this point in my life, like, why isn't there more cool guitar music? And I felt like it must, must have been six months later, Nirvana came on the scene. And Nirvana, at some point in my life, Nirvana like changed everything. And uh, that was the moment where I became more interested in this music that was under the radar. Because Nirvana came out and no one else sounded like it. So, of course, I'm trying to find more stuff that sounds like it. But the stuff that I can find, you know, is at my local record store where somebody's saying, hey, check out Shudder to Think, you know, or hey, check out Archers, Archers of Loaf or Jawbox. So I started getting into indie rock, um, or the really heavy indie music, um, through Nirvana, and then I got into that show 120 Minutes, which was just a miracle that that existed at the, that time. And I was up one night, uh, night before school, and I was up late watching these videos, and um, the video for Seven by Sunny Day Real Estate came on. And, oh, my gosh, I have goosebumps right now just, just <laughs> saying this. Uh, that was a game changer. The very next day, I lived across the street from this, like, mall where they had a Sam Goody. And I walked over there and bought Diary. And uh, that was the beginning of a, a big musical journey into the heart of indie music. You know, Nirvana and... That kind of stuff was the mainstream. Oh, and Smashing Pumpkins, you know, Stone Temple Pilots, all that stuff was so, so good. But Sunny Day was my, my link to the, the underground, you know, the real current under the surface. And through Sunny Day, I started, you know, finding other friends that like that kind of music, and then they'd say, 
hey, have you heard this band Jawbreaker, you know, or uh, have you heard of uh, the Swirlies, you know, stuff like that. And I just kind of went on the journey. And I just follow my ears, really. I just get really excited and just follow them, never thinking, oh, this is gonna, this is a cool record. This is what people like. I just like my own stuff. Um, so, uh, so that was how I got eventually to punk rock, was through Sunny Day, then to Jawbreaker. And then once I found Jawbreaker, it was over. It, it yeah. totally makes sense because it's like even hearing your records and you know, all the songs, it's like you can hear the Sunny Day, you can hear the indie, but you can hear the heaviness. You can yeah, hear those, like, yeah, you can just hear the, and I just, you listing all those bands, it's like, that makes total sense. Um, and what, what yeah, kind I of, what of kind of connected too. to you? I still feel in my songs today, I still feel, I feel Jeremy Enoch and I feel Blake Schwarzenbach all over it. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to still feel connected to that music that was so inspiring when I was younger. I mean, I literally wore out Diary. The CD was just completely scratched. <laughs> and uh, I carried the booklet around with me at school. You know, like I would read the lyrics. In, uh, in 10th grade, we had to do a book report um, and of poetry, and I chose the lyrics for 24-hour revenge therapy. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. My, my teacher's like, this is really great stuff. Good report, Chris. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, did you get involved with the scene in New Jersey, or were you more sort of playing records and listening to bands kind of on your own, watching TV, or was it, did you start getting involved in, like, the local scene as well? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I feel like I'm pretty oblivious. I'm sort of in my own world, and I I, uh, I don't notice a lot of stuff that's going on outside. So it's a miracle that I... Uh, got anywhere, honestly. I should still be in a basement somewhere listening to records. But how this all happened was that uh, one of my friends from school that also liked the sort of underground music was Brian Newman, who was the original drummer for Saves the Day. Well, Brian was pretty ambitious, and um, he really liked hardcore music. So in seventh grade, this is before I even played guitar, I was still in orchestra, Brian joined a hardcore band in Trenton, New Jersey, called Nation in Transit. And he would come back uh, the next day uh, after practice and have all these stories about how they were playing, you know, all these songs and rehearsing these songs to make a tape, you know. And it was so cool to hear about that. Um, but I didn't play guitar yet. So the next year, uh, I was, I had started playing guitar, and Brian said, "Hey, why don't you come over and?" you know, play with me, because over the summer, his band broke up, so he's looking for something else to do. So Brian was the one that asked me to come play when he found out I was playing guitar. I went over there, we had a blast, we put like a blank tape and a cassette player, and just recorded the entire like jam, and it sounded like Rage Against the Machine, it's all like riffs and <laughs> halftime and stuff. And uh, and it was just so much fun. And it was just like my best friends were there waiting for me. And uh, that's how it all started. And then I would write songs because I've always just really loved just kind of messing around and like finding little cool like chord changes or uh, putting little ideas together. 
uh, you know, on a piano or something. I just love doing that. And so Brian and a few other people just sort of gravitated around that and noticed that I was writing these kind of cool songs. And they said, you know, we should, you know, get a singer and a bass player and we should go and play shows. These are cool. We should make a tape. We should go and record something. I never, ever in a million years would have thought to even ask someone to be in a band. I really, it wouldn't have happened. So this is all Brian Newman. And then once Brian got us, you know, interested, we, uh, you know, we booked time at a studio and we made a tape. This is in ninth grade. We made a tape. And uh, it was just so much fun. And uh, ever since then, I just continued to write songs looking forward to eventually recording them as a group of songs. Uh, and then, so um, we made a tape in ninth grade. Uh, we started playing people's backyards or their basements. Uh, somebody would have a party and we'd say, hey, can we play? So we started playing all over, you know, just friends from school or some other school in town. And then the years went by. We made a seven-inch in our sophomore year of school. And then by junior year, we had gone through a few changes, gone through a few band names, and we were about to record another demo tape. And uh, we just felt like it was time to have a uh, name change. And our buddy came to the studio when we were going to record a bunch of songs. And he was just going to hang out for the day. And this is Sean McGrath, who at the time was in a band called Hands Tied. And we got to know Sean through going to see Mouthpiece at like the Princeton Arts Council when we were kids. So he came along and he was listening to us play. And he thought, uh, hey, this stuff's actually pretty cool. Seriously, you guys could play these hardcore shows that are going on in New Brunswick. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, and he thought, you know, I think a cool a cool name for your group would be Saves the Day. And we were sitting in the studio, Tracks East, uh, South River, New Jersey. This is April 17th, 1997. We went in and spent one day making the uh, demo. And that day we went home and we, we decided that we liked the name Saves the Day. And he, Sean told us it came from uh, his favorite Far Side song, which was called Hero, the, uh, the SoCal punk band Far Side. I guess there's a lyric that says, I want to be the one who saves the day. And uh, it stuck. We loved the name. We made the tape. We started playing these hardcore shows. The first show we ever played is Save the Day. This is hilarious. We played Rutgers University opening for MC Light. Yes. Because Sean had a friend that was like putting on the the, uh, the day's music. And so we played in this indoor facility with like bounce houses, and it was like a fair, basically. So, but anyway, Sean was really cool. And he had all these friends, you know, that put on shows. So later that day, it was like an afternoon show. Later that day, he's like, hey, my friends in Ignite are playing a show in New Brunswick. Uh, we should go down and just see if we can hop on their equipment and play a few of these songs. I was like, all right, I didn't know anything, you know? So we go down there, and it is a packed show. I mean, Ignite was just so, so awesome and uh, put on incredible shows, and people were all about it at the time. And they're the nicest dudes ever, like just the nicest dudes ever. So sure enough, they let us get on their equipment before That's they so even rad. 
and we played like five songs from our demo. The guitars are horribly out of tune. Everyone's like looking at us strangely. <laughs> and uh, that was the first day of Save the Day's, you know, live performing history. That's great. Well, I, I wanted to bring that up too, is that that time, that was like normal. Like you had a hardcore show, but you had it was okay to kind of have an emo band on. I mean, you could see, this is later, but you yeah, could see Snapcase huh. with Dashboard. It was fine. We toured with Snapcase. Snapcase yeah, it totally works. On, yeah, I mean, and we were we had just made Through Being Cool, and the first tour we did was with Snapcase and Buried Alive. And if think about that now, like with all the package tours and like everything needs to sound the same, it's like I oh, still look amazing. out there and I see kids and I go, they like like your fans might like Taylor Swift. They might like a metal band right. and they like you. Right. And it's it's just that whole like label mentality of like we got to put the same huh. bands all together. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. You know, I got goosebumps when you were talking about the old days, actually. It's, Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Yes, well, it's nice to reminisce. <laughs> but it is, it's that It's that time where you went to the show and it was, okay, I'm going to see a hardcore band, okay, I'm going to see an emo band, all right, well, this kind of, they were more maybe metal, but like had to sing, right. but it just, but you, it wasn't, it wasn't weird, and I think... You know, it definitely in the mid two thousands, it was like these package tours, and you watch the shows, and it's like, what's the difference in any of the bands? And I and I That's think really I, interesting. I don't know if you felt that. I mean, I know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit in the years, but just even that thought, like, did you notice that change where it was almost like, why does every band we're playing with, you know, pop punk or something? You know, I definitely noticed it. I don't think I ever was able to articulate it as clearly as you just put it, but I think that. That is the difference. I mean, there used to be just an openness and an authenticity, and everybody was just putting on their show and playing their songs. And it was everybody was there for each other. And then it became sort of a marketing sort of gimmick. Who has the same kind of haircuts? Put them on the same tour. You know, it's kind of kind of interesting. Um, and I, I definitely noticed it as the years have gone, gone by. Uh, we took a break after... 2003 for about a year and a half I was just kind of at home and going through a lot of stuff like for myself and and growing and when we came back uh, I was kind of fascinated and I think the, the thing that I noticed was exactly what you're saying there was this new wave of commercial underground music that had nothing to do with the sincerity of where it all was coming from before and uh I chalked it up to MySpace at the time because people could just put up a really cool-looking photo and they got their haircuts and their T-shirts and stuff. And uh, then they get 100,000 MySpace fans and they put out their debut record and it goes like gold. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they're emo stars. So I started using the, the term emo stars back then because there was something I could feel that there were rock stars now in the world of this, like, what had been authentic underground music uh and it was startling at first i was angry at first you know I'm, I'm on the other side now where i'm just sort of i'm just appreciative of the whole journey and uh, i'm sort of just more curious about how things how things are and why they are the way they are but i'm not like ticked off as much i guess maybe i'm closer to being sad about it sometimes but i have also an incredible undying optimism that i believe 
in sincerity. You know, I believe in that experience, the true experience of your heart. And I think that's what people connect with. Well, that, that, um, also, that also brings up the thing that I was, you know, nowadays, um, it's, this is really even current to what you just said. Emo as a word, you know, was something. It got sort of run through the mud. Um, you know, you, you guys were kind of in the beginning, middle, and end of this. I call it the hair yeah. farmer. I call it the hair farmer era. And then it's like, <laughs> it's, and now these newer bands, these younger labels like Top Shelf, Count Your Lucky Stars, they have these bands and they're referencing the old school. They're referencing American football. Right. They're referencing, mm-hmm. you know, Mineral Sunny Day and all this stuff. And now they're being written up in Pitchfork, and they're being I written, know. and they're on Billboard. And now it's like I feel so good that it it's people aren't saying, "Oh, emo is my chem." No offense to them, but like again, they sh- I I would hope that they would think about Sunny Day Thursday, you know, like that. And now it is. And so it's almost like you've been through the whole thing. You've been the whole, you've been through the whole full circle of beginning. No one cared the big, you know, MTV, MySpace boom. It's over. No one cares about it. And then it just rekindles itself. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, there's truth in it and the songs are decent. I mean, there are so many good bands in this world of music that write incredible songs, really incredible songs. And that's, that's something that is, Special, and you listen to the radio, and those songs are put together by a committee. Oh, by ten people. Exactly. You know, so there's no heart and there's no soul. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I mean, alas. (laughs) (laughs) But But I'm I'm thankful that it's still here, you know, and I think that's the reason it's here is because of its heart and soul. Yeah, and I I, I always believed, like, this is going to get through the hair farmer era. Like, it isn't just yeah. going to be about the clothes and the hair. Like, music will come through again, and it, it, it is. It seems to be people are referencing that, and, you know, there's people that, you know, send me links to their stuff. Like, check this out. I'm really influenced by, you know, Jawbreaker and... You know, I love, you know, all this stuff on Deep Elm Records, and it's like, that's great. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's great. But yeah, man. I have faith in it, you know? I really do. Like, things that are true, you know, as long as it's not crappy music. <laughs> I think that's partially what helps emo, you know? A lot of great songwriters. When did you first hear really? the word? Emo. Um, going to hardcore shows... Uh, the first emo band I ever saw was this band from Canada. Man, I can't recall their name, but they were absolutely amazing. People literally sat down while they were playing, and the band was actually wearing backpacks on Oh, that's stage. amazing. You can't... What label? And the, the, uh, just, they were doing it all by themselves. I mean, this was like maybe 1996, and uh, the singer was actually crying on stage actually crying and wait there wasn't a stage <laughs> he was just stand, they were just standing there in front of you and it was the most moving thing i bought their tape and i listened to it all the time i used to have a backpack with a disc man and uh you know a tape player whatever you call it, the walkman and uh and i i had their demo tape you know and i'd have diary in there and uh, whatever awesome you know local bands that came through but that's when I remember emo happening. When Sunny Day came out, um, I don't remember thinking of them as emo. 
you know, I think that was like a few years later I started to hear that word creeping in. But to me, when it first was uh, when it was first used, it was about music that was emotional. You know, like like the singer was actually crying on stage. Like, wow, that guy's emo, and it was inspirational. You know, people were people were into that, not turned turned off. I mean, but that was uh, that whole world of music came from a generation that was alienated. You know, and if you look at the gr- the world of grunge, I mean, listen to those lyrics. Those people are so disconnected from the world they're living in. The very the next generation that comes along, they're even more bummed. And so emo comes out. Yeah. You know? Out of that inner alienation sense of just not belonging. Was it was it you know, you guys got roped into that. Um you know, I think with with, you know, can't can't slow down and, and you I mean definitely it was punk, but it was you got roped into it. Was it something at the time you were like, Whatever, it doesn't matter? Um yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't. No way. I still. I never minded. I've never minded that term, ever. Because I think partially because when I became familiar of it, it was, it was a good. It had a good connotation. It was a good term, positive term. Um, so I've always been proud. You know, <laughs> proud to be one of those like emo flags. Well, terms. I mean, you guys are mentioned if it's in an article or a. You know, um, referenced if it's Spotify. You know, if you like this, like this. You, know, you guys are there, right? Um, right yeah. and, and I think that's something great. Um, I wanted to go back. I what was the story with EVR getting your demo tape? Oh man, it was so cool. This was all Sean too, Sean McGrath, um, because he was in an actual hardcore band that had toured the whole country. Uh, you know, he knew people. And then his next band after Mouthpiece was Hands Tied, and Hands Tied put out a 7-inch on EVR. Um, so we knew Steve through Sean. And at first, Steve was incredibly hesitant. He told Sean, look, man, I'm not going to sign any of your guys, uh, y- y'all's side projects, because I don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, you know, let's just stick with Hands Tied. Um, but Sean, you know, said, look, dude, these songs are really cool. It's cool. Just trust me, you got to hear it. And Steve, uh, I think Steve resisted for quite a while. I mean, eventually, you know, he came down to a show in Pennsylvania uh, after he had heard other people start to talk about this band with this cool demo. It sounds tape. like Steve. Like, oh, so people, yeah, people are talking about Save the Day. I guess I'll go check them out. And, uh, you know, he goes down to this show in Pennsylvania. We played with 10 Yard Fight. You know, and uh, I think... Is everyone writing down these band names? Because you're going to have a... (laughs) Everyone needs to listen to Floor Punch, Hands Tied, and Ten Yard Fight right now. Turn off the podcast. (laughs) Go. Seriously, this is not important anymore. Just go. And it was incredible. We were just these kids. You know, everybody accepted each other. Like you said, it was just a different time. It didn't matter that we weren't playing this, like, you know, youth crew music. It just didn't matter. Uh, everybody liked each other, and Steve saw us, and he saw that we were really honest kids, and he met us, and Steve is such an upstanding guy. You know, he's, his values are true, you know, and uh, he cared about us as people, you know. He thought, hey, these are good kids. And then, you know, he, he, uh, he called us about a week later. We were in rehearsal, and he called us on a landline, and, uh, you know, it, luckily we were in between songs like tuning. We hear the phone ring. We run over. Sean ran over and was on the phone for about 10 minutes. And the rest of us are like in the other room, like chewing our nails. And he comes back in. He's like, he says he wants to do a record. 
and we just started jumping up and down. I mean, that was, I have goosebumps again, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> and that was, that was it. And then Steve took us out to dinner. We went to Vegetarian Paradise 2. VP2 Love it. In the city. And uh, we had an incredible uh, a dinner with him, and we, we all hit it off. And, you know, I think for him it was almost like just kind of this funny thing. Like, yeah, I'm going to go give it a shot on these kids from New Jersey. This this could be interesting, you know, <laughs> see what happens. You know, we spent, like, the, the album cost, like, $4,000 to make. You know, my mom paid for it, and Steve paid him back after we Steve paid her back after we signed the so deal. So great. And uh, like that, that, that was the, the That is story. crazy. Um, I yeah. mean, there's, I mean, obviously that record for me is the, you know, I remember getting it from Dan, who works at the label, and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, you know, and I think too, it's like that early backlash of Lifetime was so short, was so right. short to me. It really was. It hurt for me for a long time. Yeah. But that was important. It was really important. You know, I mean, obviously I was trying to sound like Lifetime and Gorilla Biscuits. I mean, in Dag Nasty, if you listen to the guitar parts, it's all synthesized out of Lifetime, Gorilla Biscuits, and Dag Nasty. And that's all I was doing. And because I was obsessed. And it wasn't anything... Uh, it was purely innocent. I was just a little kid all excited, you know? Like, the first riffs I wrote sounded like Led Zeppelin, because that's where I was coming from. It was the same thing, just going through my little phase. Uh, and now I look back on it, and I'm almost like, I'm so proud that I just, like, wore that so openly, you know? <laughs> I was. It was just that I was unaware of what people would say. But thankfully, I've always been like that. I think that was an initial test for me. You know, how am I going to deal with people's voices, their criticism? And uh, and that was an early, early trial. Uh, but I very quickly uh, knew that I loved music so much that, like, I was a maniac for putting myself through all the tears, but I'm not going to stop. Yeah. And I think, too, it's like you, you, you get these people that say things and this and that, and it's like... But then you go to a show, and it's kind of like when you go to a absolute punk comments. It's like what always rises to the top. It's people that are negative, not positive. Mm. There's probably 500 yep. kids that right, read that true. article and was like, "Oh hell yeah, new saves the day, done." And but it's that kind of thing that you look toward that negative. That's yeah, true. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, I mean, it's like I could be having a great day, uh, but you know. Like, if my foot hurts, it might bother me. You know what I mean? It's, maybe it's just human nature that that thorn, that thorn in your side is going to be more of a nuisance. You know what I mean? It just calls your attention. So I certainly, it's like a, you have a sore in your mouth, you keep tonguing it, you know? You know, it's kind of like that thing. The, um, and I think, too, I mean, you mentioned Sean earlier, and I think such a big part of you guys was him and um, what was what was probably your favorite memory? I know from that era, like the can't slow down sort of. Hmm, that's a good question. I think my my favorite memory from the can't slow down era would have to be opening for Lifetime at their their final show at the Melody Bar in New Brunswick. I mean that just sticks out to me as just. A moment, you know, for me, 
I mean, I still listen to Lifetime. I still read Ari's lyrics and I learn from them. You know, I mean, and I was I, like, let me be. There's full disclosure. I was a complete, complete maniac super fan. I would, uh, I would leave school every day and drive to New Brunswick, which is about 20 minutes down Route 27. And uh, I would go to Art Cass's record shop that he worked at, and I would just thumb through records. And, like, thank God Ari is a really nice guy, or at least just really, really nice me. And he was cool, really cool. Like, the nicest guy ever would show me records. Uh, he listened to our demo tape. Uh, he had, you know, he asked me if I could give him a ride somewhere. Uh, I even went over to uh, their house a couple times and then he asked us to play their their going away show. Now I have to, because I, I have to be completely honest about this, part of the reason they asked us to play was that about a month before the show they had sold us their bass cabinet because they didn't think they were going to be playing that many more shows. So they needed their bass cabinet for the gig, so they're like, hey, let's just have say that they play the show <laughs> so we can use our bass cabinet. I like that. Uh, needless to say, I still have that bass <laughs> cabinet, and I also have a bass head that we bought from um, Shelter. We bought it from Franklin from Shelter a long time ago, and that was like my pride and joy, like down in my basement where I used to record. I had the like lifetime bass cabinet and the Shelter head you know, Ampeg head, and uh, that was cool. You've made it. I mean, at that point, you've made it, really. <laughs> yeah. There's really nowhere else to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I still think back on those times and just realize that I was so lucky from the get-go. It, it's it's a lot of the – it's the music. It was the time. And I think about – I mean, I would love for you to tell everyone out there. I mean, before iPhones, before you know any of this, and you were doing it – it was such a personal thing. You were in front of somebody saying something. It wasn't an email. You know, it wasn't a yeah. a text. It wasn't a, a Facebook message. It was like you saw, you know, Sean was helping you out or you saw Ari at the record store. It was like this connection where it was probably easier for them to ask you. And what, what about sort of those early tours yeah. really kind of stuck out? Like you probably made your best friends then versus – you know, now I'm sure you have great tours and meet the bands, but oh, absolutely! You're you're sort of Those stuck in special days. yeah, you're you're sort of stuck in your phone, or you've got you, you got to check stuff and update, you know, Facebook. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh man, when we first started touring, golly, I mean, there were no cell phones. Um, there was hardly internet. I don't remember the internet back then. Uh, it was probably it must have been around. You know, Al Gore, like at some point, like that, and and um. Uh, we used to have to stop at payphones, and that was it. Every day we'd be looking for pay payphones. That was a regular part of our day. Stop at a payphone, call home, you know, for five seconds because you can't afford that much, you know, and then get in the get in the van and then go play somebody's, you know, basement show, and then go sleep on their friend's floor. You know, it was all it was all of that. Everybody was just together and um i just think about that time too i mean what other what other scene you know what other time frame 
I mean, yes, there's probably a bunch, but definitely for the punk and indie hardcore kind of scene, that was sort of that last time where that happened. I mean, we were talking earlier, I booked that pizza place show for you guys. I hoped you showed up. You know, I didn't like... Right, and you, fly, and you just put out flyers. Yeah. Another show. Yeah. No, no, like, internet blasting. No, it was one Boy Sets Fire show, and I hoped you guys... I think I said, hey, the show starts at 8, you know, and you showed up at 7-4. Like, it was that... It's that thing <laughs> now, like, I would probably be checking my phone a thousand times, like, oh my god, did right. Chris did, did Chris text me back? I don't know if he wrote me in the last four minutes. Does that mean he got it? Right. <laughs> We'd be having anxiety because of all the traffic reports and stuff, you know? <laughs> it's a whole different ballgame. I'm so glad that I grew up in that time, though, because when I tour now, I'm just still just kind of out there to enjoy it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just by the seat of my pants. I'm, where the day takes me. Yeah, that's great. And I like that. Um, yeah. The uh, I know a lot of people were asking um, some questions online and stuff, and one of them was, talk about Three Miles Down. Um, about that song, and I okay. mean, it's still such a fan favorite. I feel whenever that thing comes so, on. Yeah. Oh, that's I love that song. So actually, this is interesting. We've been uh, recently going over Cancel Down because we're going to play it um, for a live stream coming up. Nice. And yeah, and so all these memories have been flooding back. And so when I listen to Three Miles Down, it all comes back to me. Uh, we were making the record. We did not plan for that song. And uh, one day, Brian said to me, that a lot of the early ideas came from Brian, and he would just say, hey, what if you did this? And then I'd go off for a while and see if I could do that thing uh, and come back, and he'd be like, cool. So what he said, we were in the studio. We made that record in six days, and we had two days to mix. So it must have been day four. He said, you know, what if we had an acoustic song on this album? It would be so cool because, you know, none of the other bands really do that. And it'd be kind of weird in the middle of this, like, you know, melodic hardcore record. And so I thought, all right, cool. So I went home that night and just sat in the basement and I wrote lyrics and lyrics and lyrics. And I wrote about a four-minute song. <laughs> I come into the studio the next day and they're like, all right, let's, you know, set up and do this acoustic track. And I go in there and I play it. And it's just going on and on and on. And Brian goes after on the talk back. He's like, yeah, uh, that's way too long. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, like, let me think for a second. And so I thought for a second, and I was like, oh, I could just do, like, this whole, like, first cycle, you know, this first complete cycle before I start to repeat things too much. Uh, and so I whittled it down, and it turned out, so much better that way. Um, and uh, I walked inside and they all had this, you know, look of joy on their faces, like, wow, that, was, that turned out better than we, we thought. Um, and it's, it's cool listening to it now. I, I almost can't believe that, um, you know, that I, I was able to do that as, as a 17-year-old kid because the lyrics feel really honest. I mean, the whole re record feels really honest. Um, so uh, I'm really proud of it a cool cool little composition that's great it's just you know it's that whole thing of like we only had six days and we were learning it on uh, the yeah. fly and just that um it just seems you know you guys were so green but then also you were ripe for it, it i mean it was like this is what you wanted to do totally 
Yeah, it's, an, it's a miracle that it all happened so early, too, because here I am, 33 years old, and you know, I've been doing this for a long, a long, long time now. Um, and so it's, I, I can't believe I got started so young, and I was able to learn so much. Or I feel like now I'm just enjoying it so much. You know, I've gone through so many of the ups and downs where I really understand what it's about, and I'm just really thankful you know, to still do it. That's awesome. Um, yeah. That's such a good feeling to be in. Um, I want to talk about um, Through Being Cool, um, obviously the next record. This is definitely my, This is if there was like that moment where you're like, okay, this this band's amazing, they can do no wrong. Um, I, I, I love this record. I wore this tape out. Thank you. Um, I think that's I had, the, awesome. I think I had the demo. I don't know if Dan had sent me stuff and it was just like, um, but the first time I heard Shoulder of the Wheel, um, I was like, why isn't this band on the radio? Um, oh man. Awesome. What was the one who, who, who wrote the riff and what did you guys do when that was played? And you were like, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've always come up with the majority of the music. So I'm really just kind of playing stuff that I think is cool. And uh, different people in the band will say, wow, I really like that. Let's, you know, can we do this as a band? And that was one of those ones that was instantly uh, obvious. And I played it for Brian, and he just immediately thought, okay, that's that's going to be a single or whatever that means. You know, you, of course, bands talk like that. Um, and uh, and then we made, a, we made an early recording of that, actually, in New York City for some Long Island uh, compilation. And... Um, we could just tell that this was like a fresh new thing. I mean, it sounded so different from Can't Slow Down. Um, and, um, and it had so much energy. And even though it wasn't the, uh, the really fast punk beat, you know, it still was uh, just absolutely urgent. But it also was, I mean, it still sounds good. Like those, a lot of records from that time, you put it on now and you're like, whew, maybe, you know, an extra pass <laughs> at the mastering desk. But you, pl- right. you play this loud and it still cuts through. And I think that oh, yeah, that's the thing that I, I love about it. It just, it sounds like you, you could have put that out tomorrow and it would be fine. That's cool. I like hearing that. Um, and of course, I mean, the, 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 the cover too, such an iconic cover and the you know the idea behind it what was the thought about that because i'm now you know there's there's a band that you know kind of mocked not mocked the cover but they sort of copied the cover for their record um well i think there was a band that actually did an entire layout that was joking about through being cool and at the end there was something quite surprising that they were trying to find at the party uh and i won't get into it oh um, i remember but... that yes let's every let, everyone can figure that out on their own yes m- moving on so, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Again, this was Brian. Uh, uh, Brian was—he's—he's he's got a thousand ideas, um, and uh, he's also a photographer. And so he thought, you know, what if we did this really kitschy photo shoot that was like—it um, was obviously sort of a staged, um, glossy, you know, sort of Los Angeles style shoot. Um, you know, that's at a party and there's, you know, bright flashing lights and so everybody's all lit up and stuff and and he thought it'd be really cool to tell this story. And for Brian it was all tongue in cheek. You know, he thought, 
you know, the name of the record is through being cool. It would be cool if we're, like, at this party and we don't really give a shit about being there. <laughs> so, so that was where it all came from, and, and it was 100% tongue-in-cheek. We sent it to EVR. You know, we got a call from him the next day, like, hey, guys, I don't know if this is a great idea because you guys look like you think you're the coolest shit in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, no, 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 wait, it's the opposite. It's, like, totally, totally and completely the opposite. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, so they trusted us, and sure enough, people gave us a lot of shit at the time, but it's iconic, and uh, I think it's cool as hell. Yeah, the, I mean, it's not, I mean, AP listed, you know, one of the top records from that year, um, from 99. I mean, it's just... Oh, man, that's neat. It's just such a, you know, cool thing to have that still bubble up, and um, the thing that I loved was the video for Shoulder to the Wheel, because... Oh, yeah. Because it was... At that time, it was, okay, emo is really serious, like, punk, we're going to be, you know, the, no one has fun. And it was like, you guys kind of right. turned it and was like, we're laughing, huh. we're joking. for some. Yeah. And, of course, you know, a lot of people took lyrics in that time, you know, so seriously. And what does it mean? And you guys were having fun with it. I loved it. That's interesting. You know, I never even thought of that. That's funny, and even the lyrics, you know, uh, when I listen to the lyrics on Through Being Cool, it's written by this kind of, you know, he's sort of a sad kid, but the songs are so fun, and there was only a sense of excitement and optimism in the air. Um, so, you know, I feel, I feel like uh, that, that kind of thing is uh, my favorite kind of music sometimes, you know, like the Smiths, where you get these happy, fun, exciting-sounding songs, and then the guy singing about it is, he's in a good mood talking about his blues. You know, he's happy talking about it, like, yeah, I had a fucking shitty night. <laughs> you know? And that's what I feel from through being cool. Yeah. You know, we're, we're excited, even though we're just kind of raw to the world. And of course, I mean, shooting the video, I mean, you must, the, I mean, I'm sure the budget was crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, you saw all the, probably like $13. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you see how many, if anyone knows anyone that works at EVR, you can see everyone working. Like you can see all the coworkers there. Um, in, <laughs> but it was, I mean, that was, I think everyone was kind of figuring it out then because I mean, yeah. didn't everyone at the time be like, Oh shit, we've got something here. We got to do a video, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because, I mean, that was right around the time Blink-182 was kind of coming up. You know, because the director had just done a, the uh, Blink-182 video for whatever their, like, breakout song was. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we were kind of looking into it, because they were one of those bands from our, more like our world of music, just this underground sort of like punk music, and they were breaking out. You know, so we thought, hey, let's get that guy. <laughs> you know, and I remember the day he pulled up and it was snowing, like there's ice all over. And they came in with this, like, four-person crew. We just invited every single person we knew to <laughs> pile into that house. And we put on a party. It was a blast. Hey, if you need an exciting new record to look forward to, Iodine Recordings, the Boston-based record label, is releasing the 30th anniversary edition of Quicksand's classic debut, Slip, on vinyl. This is the album's first time on vinyl in over a decade with completely remastered sound. This deluxe gatefold edition with Slipcase comes with a poster, a deluxe LP, and a 64-page hardcover book. The book chronicles the album's history and has commentary from Anthrax, Hole, Rise Against, Youth of Today, Papa Roach, and more. Experience this iconic post-hardcore record in a brand new way with the 30th 
25th anniversary edition of Quicksand Slip, available for pre-order now and in stores on March 31st, 2023. And since they returned in 2021, Iodine Recordings has released almost 20 albums to date from bands like Stretch Armstrong, The Darling Fire, One Line Drawing, Jerome's Dream, Sulker Fire, and more. Head on over to iodinerecordings.com for more and follow them on Instagram at Iodine Recordings. Yeah, it, 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 I love watching that video because that's what I love to kind of, if I'm reminiscing or something, like I put that on because it's the clothing, it's the it's the time. No one has a phone in their hand, like all that stuff. <laughs> there were no cell phones. I don't remember cell phones until <laughs> Say What You Are. Yeah. I, First time I ever had a phone was Say What You Are. <laughs> so the last of the non-cell phone era. Um, yeah. And the um, I, I mean that you 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 bring up um, say say what you are the move to vagrant, um, I think that was a pretty big, you know, talked about in the scene leaving you know EVR. It's obviously tough to go between labels. What was sort of the, you know, thought then? Because at that time, I mean emo, it was breaking pretty big. I mean, there was yeah, buses, was. there was big tours, huge songs, big producers. Um, what was the, yeah? What well, was the... so the the first band that ever sort of started to show signs of that kind of success was the Get Up Kids, and they would come through, and it was like the Midwestern invasion. Man, people would lose their minds. I have never seen anything like it to this day. The way people would respond to the Get Up Kids, and so we were all just massive fans. You know, we we were we thought. They were the coolest, and uh, they signed to Vagrant, and uh, that was maybe, yeah, I think it was 1999, maybe, uh, maybe right after, maybe it was 2000, they signed to Vagrant, and, um, you know, I think it's normal when you're, you know, doing some sort of business venture to look at, like, other things that are successful, and we saw the Get Up Kids go to Vagrant, and we thought, uh, you know, that could be a cool label. And again, a lot of this is Brian because Brian and I don't, it's not like I'm, I mean, I'm giving him credit because I wouldn't have ever thought to uh, expand in these ways that he did. But Brian saw the ghetto kids starting to sort of uh, blow up and um, he thought, you know, maybe we should talk to other labels. And I think we didn't really even have to wait because I got a, I got a phone call at my mom's house, the day Serbian Cool came out, which was November 2nd, 1999, uh, and it was Kevin Kasatsu, who was a and at the time, and he said, hey, we love your new album. We can't believe how much you guys have evolved since the first album. We, we'd love to have you guys come out to L.A. so we could talk about maybe, you know, doing a deal. And so uh, it was just kind of exciting, you know? There's this labels calling calling us and the day after it's out. Then, yeah. And uh and uh oddly enough, all these other labels started calling. I mean big labels. You know, and MCA and Atlantic and all these guys were you know, putting their favorite artists on the phone like, Hey, will you call this guy from Save the Day and tell him we have a great team over here at Warner? Oh my god, yeah, that must was, have been insane. Yeah. You know, just get some call out of the blue and be like, all right, um, that sounds cool. They have 10,000 employees. Neat. That's really, really cool. Um, 
but we were these little kids, and we I, personally, I really loved EVR at the time. I couldn't have imagined anything else. I mean, it was a miracle to even have a label that wanted to put out our demo. And, you know, I have to go back in time on that that point right there. Um, specifically, when we made our demo, we we sent it to every single label that existed at the time. And the indie labels got back to us, but even, like, you know, Jade Tree and Victory, they all turned us down. They all said, you sound like Lifetime. But Equal Vision gave us a shot. So anyway, you know, fast forward, I, I am a very loyal person. Um, so my heart uh, was with EBR. And I think that was a tough, it was a tough move. Um, and also, you know, thinking back on it, uh, the momentum was right, and it was sort of an inevitability. You know, the dam was going to burst, um, and it and it did. And I think we're lucky that we wound up on Vagrant because they were an indie. They weren't these big labels, you know, having their yes men call and you know pitch their marketing schemes and stuff. They were just a bunch of guys like us that wore t-shirts and liked records. So it felt it felt like the West Coast EVR, you know, that had like slightly bigger reach, you know, further for reach. That was it. No, that I mean that 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 sounds perfect. I mean, it sounds exactly what it is. I mean, it really was. It it was a little bigger. It had a little different connections. It was in Los Angeles. It wasn't upstate. It just was a little differences to it. Um, yeah. I I think too. Yeah, I think too. I mean the. That time too it was like a lot of like Vagrant was definitely getting the right bands and things were hitting Hot Rod Circuit, the Get Up Kids, all that oh, stuff yeah. was, was Alkaline Trio, Dashboard. Yep, and so Gamer Cities. Yeah, it, it's just those, those were all um, those were all hitting at once, um, and it and it and it totally makes sense. I think too that that record, um, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh well. You know, I only like, you know, through being cool. And it was just like funny to hear that because I was like, you're not listening. You know, you're not right. listening to, you know, At Your Funeral is a great song. Yes, it's not, you know, high tempo and, you know, uh, breaks down like, but it's 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 there. Everything's in it. Um, and it and it, I think it fit with all the other sort of vagrant bands that were happening. You were all different sounding. I mean, the anniversary right. was different. Than Hey Mercedes, mm-hmm. than you guys, but it was you. I think all those bands, and this is me thinking out loud, thinking this is whatever you guys were conscious of this, but it's like you guys all brought your A game at the same time and the same label. <laughs> Everybody was on fire. Yeah, I mean, Vagrant Across Everybody America was tour fire. was fucking huge. That was uh, absolutely nuts. That was a, a crazy, crazy tour. That was Brian Newman's last tour with the band too. That was I remember. I remember that tour because we were outside Irving, and I don't. I think he like I don't know got me in, or we hung out for a second, you know, from emailing back in the day and EVR stuff, and it was just like it was just a sea of people on Irving Place, and I was like, Brian, this crazy. is nuts. There's four buses here. Like, what is oh this? Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, absolutely insane. Were you guys just yeah, kind of like bizarre. on a wave? What was the what were sort of the, the oh, thoughts? Dude, it was incredible. I mean, it's still incredible. You know, it's this miracle existence where people give a shit. You know, and even you know, like I know from doing this so long that it goes in it goes in waves. So I know that that was a crest, and it was an incredible peak. I mean, that was unbelievable. And um, TV shows, you know, I, all that stuff. TV shows, yeah. Conan, Kilborn, 
at the time, Craig Kilborn, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, all that stuff. It was like wild, though, because, you know, a couple of years before, we were still sleeping on people's floors. <laughs> <laughs> so it was neat. And we were still those little kids, you know? I mean, I was 21 years old when we made Stay What You Are. This is a teeny little guy. It's bizarre. Um, and I think too, I mean, the, that time frame, you know, leading into that sort of DreamWorks stuff within Reverie, what was the, you know, being sort of in it, in the music industry, but not really, you know, being a fan, um, was, what was sort of the, the, you know, change to be like, all right, now I do want, you know, a thousand people working with me. Um, was it so? Oh yeah. So. So all this stuff thankfully happened so organically. It was great looking back on it. So we, Vagrant, uh, you know, Stereoard does great. Vagrant gives us a nice budget. We go to make the next album follow-up, and they're like, you know, spend a bunch of time. So we spend three months or two or two months making the thing. And we're in, we're in this big studio, and uh, at the end of it, the record sounded really fucking cool. Like, we could not believe what we had done. And so Rob Schnaff, the producer, was talking to us, and he's like, this is, you know, this is a different level of music, and you guys, you know, you probably could talk to, you know, major labels. And, uh, you know, I, I have a bunch of A&R friends that I could have just come and listen. So he and our manager, Rich, at the time, just had a bunch of people just come in and listen just to see what the kind of mood was. And everybody flipped out. You know, it's funny thinking back because the album wasn't commercially successful, but everyone flipped out. They're like, sounds like the Beatles, you know, you sound like a young McCartney, and we haven't heard songs like this in 20 years. And so we all get really excited, and of course, yeah, this feels right. And no, we don't want to sign to uh, one of those massive, uh, you know, more commercially driven labels. DreamWorks is perfect because they're like, a glorified indie. It's all it's owned by billionaires. There are no investors. And the other difference with other labels, they might have, you know, investors that want to see returns every quarter and stuff. But DreamWorks seemed perfect. They were they were a label that was started to help artists. So all this stuff was just right in line with the spirit of Save the Day, and just all like happened perfectly. Um, and so, so we wound up, uh, so we made it the album for Vagrant, but then we signed to DreamWorks and they licensed the CD and digital, um, Vagrant kept the vinyl. So that was sort of a co-release. A co and then a month after the album came out, they sold their label to Interscope. And so most of the bands were dropped, but... Uh, us and a handful of other bands from DreamWorks were just kind of shuffled over to Interscope. Um, and for us, we had just put out an album. You know, like, we're we're about ready to, like, really start promoting this thing. And uh, and we got switched to another A&R sort of setup and different management over there. And um, nobody really knew that we had put out an album, <laughs> even because... They had their own records they were working on. You know, they've been ready to put out the new Mariah Carey for six months or whatever at that point. And now they're so getting thrown they're this the, fucking band that came from yeah, DreamWorks, yeah. They already put out a record, and sure, it, like, charted, 
you know, but like they don't have the time for it. The music doesn't really fit the format of radio at the time. And so we asked them to drop us. And so they were extremely gracious and they dropped us and we built a studio. Uh, and that's pretty much, that was the beginning of like the next era for save the day. And then, so it was back, where we were going to, it was back to vagrant yeah. from that. Yeah. So it was back to vagrant. And I mean, we, I mean, DreamWorks and vagrant put out in reverie together. And for us, we, you know, vagrant paid for in reverie was made for vagrant. Um, and for us, it just felt like, okay, that was kind of awkward. <laughs> um, let's, let's go back home. And so, and, and then we just were, you know, for the last however many years, we've just been quietly doing our thing, enjoying it, loving it, putting yeah. out records. Yeah. Thinking thoughts. <laughs> um, I just, one, re- one song on In Reverie that, um, for me kind of hits home is definitely Anywhere With You, um. Just, oh, just the riff, just the, you know, the time. I think, I think there's, uh, I don't know. There's always the big, the, the big riff song on all your records seems to always connect with me. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I always. It's funny because uh, um, I like the, I like songs to exist in a group. I really like the album format. And there comes a time like when I'm almost finished, like putting the songs together for each record, where I realize, wait a second, there's no like big rock riff. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how um, the song on Daybreak Z was written because I was ah. like, wait a second, I didn't like this. So I just started jamming. Nice. I was going to yeah. say that the, a lot of times, and this is, you know, me being in the moment hearing people talk about you guys and the records, and they talk about the, the trilogy, you know, the Sound of the Alarm, uh, Under the Boards, and Daybreak. And yeah. you had mentioned, you know, Sound the Alarm was discontent under the boards is reflection and daybreaks acceptance. I think that's a really big thing to, as a band to be able to take that much time and kind of run through those themes. And, um, yeah, listening back, I mean, there's just, there's some great, you know, hooks in these things. And I think there's, I'm speaking to the older people that are my age. Like, I really think, you know, look back at these other records and, and listen to radio or listen to head for the Hills um, and I think, uh, I don't know. I just, I... yeah, can't stay the same 1984. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm really proud of it because if you take it as a whole, which it's a, as it is intended as a 37 song piece, mm-hmm. um, there's tons of cool shit, you know, I'm yeah. really proud. And the neat thing was like, I just had to do that on my own. Mm-hmm. I had to get to the root of why I was alienated to begin with. So for me, it was just like a, it was a personal journey that needed to happen. So I find that the people that really connect with the trilogy are the people going through that same transition. Well, a lot of your lyrics are yeah. definitely, I mean, there's the, to me, they seem like you're going through a lot and you're, it's almost like it's, it's nothing can be fixed. I'm damaged forever, but I'm still going. Does that make sense? Well, it's accepting. It's accepting what is going on. Ouch, that hurt. You know, if you walk through, you know, uh, a rose garden, it'd be crazy not to admit to yourself that it hurts to get cut by the thorns. Like, it'd be insane to go, oh, it just smells so nice here. Like, I could just, like, jump on that bush. That's insane. So to me, like, I just, I noticed the pain as a way to 
be sane, literally, to accept the truth of my actual existence, to not turn away from it. And for me, that is survival, man. I mean, that's, that is triumphant to me. I mean, to be completely, like, hyperbolic about this thing, that is winning. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm looking at it in the face and writing it down, <laughs> not, back, not backing down myself. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the future, too, and a couple other things. Um, the new record. Um, yeah. Connecting again with Mr. Bemis. His imprint on e- EVR, and I mean, you guys work together as two tongues. How does it feel yeah. back to be in familiar waters, not only with, you know, Max and but e- e- um, Equal Vision as well? Oh man, it's so exciting. Max is just one of my favorite people. He's one of my best friends in the world, let alone like in music. You know, I played a song at his wedding, you know, the first dance for Max and Carrie, and we have a very special connection. And for me, um, I could almost cry thinking about how thankful I am for Max and Dan, you know, for, for bringing us under, you know, the roof of such a supporting household. You know, like we're just a family member there, and they care, and uh, and we can stay <laughs> You know, they're not going to kick us out on our butts. And and uh, it feels like the beginning of the rest of Saves the Day to me. You know, there was a 15-year journey, or however long. I guess we started in 1997, so a long-year journey to get here. And now we uh, get to embark on this, the next part of it. And I, I couldn't be happier to, uh, than to be doing this with uh, Max and Dan. And Equal Vision... Like I said, they were the first label that ever believed in the music when literally every other label we sent it to rejected us. And uh, that's, to me, I mean, I could fall down in out of gratitude, you know, just be on my hands and knees. <laughs> thank you so much uh, forever to Equal Vision, um, you know, just out of that sense of... Yeah. Incredibly fortunate I am. That's great. What um what about the album? Man, I'll tell you what. Yeah, this is cool because, uh, like I said, all of Save the Day's music was about me trying to like get to the root of why I felt so sort of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel just at peace. So I went through the process of the trilogy to get to the bottom of it, and this is the first album I'm writing on the other side where I feel just fine. <laughs> I feel great. And uh, I'm alive and in love with my life. That is awesome. And thankful and happy. And so the songs always come from this inner place. That's why sometimes they feel sort of urgent. Sometimes they feel sad. Sometimes they feel angry, you know. Um, But this one feels good, you know. And I listened to it. We played a bunch of it last night in rehearsal. And we all talked about how exciting it felt to play the songs live together. I mean, they have an energy on their own. And I think that energy is coming from my my inner place of, you know, contentedness. Um, and I noticed that as I sat down to write the album, I almost couldn't believe it at first. I felt weird at how happy everything sounded. Because when I'm sitting down to work on music, I'm just letting my ears do everything. My mind has to be shut off. If my mind gets involved, it's uh, It sounds like it was put together, you know, 
consciously. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It sounds, it sounds like it was forced. So I just let it all come out. And as these songs were coming out, I felt at first almost unsure. Uh, and then as they kept coming out, I just realized that this is what's happening right now. This is the music that's coming out of my heart. And I'm just going to let it happen as I always have. But I was startled by its like buoyancy and optimism, um, and, and really invigorated by it at the same time. I had so much fun writing this record. This was the most fun record to write, other than in Reverie for me. Well, because it was you, you felt happy. Yeah, exactly. I was just on cloud nine. That's much great. like in Reverie. I mean, and in Reverie, I was in a different sort of surreal, dreamy place. Mm-hmm. Um, and but there was still a lot of pain under the surface that I had not yet turned my attention to, uh, but that was waiting for the trilogy. But so now it's just pure sun. This feels like the and second even, crest. Yeah, it is, man. It feels like that for me. It's, it, it's at least I'm I'm back. We're yeah, back. that's great. Yeah. I'd love to kind of know what stuff outside of the band you know that you do that that you love. Is there reading things or is there things that you're interested in learning about like what kind of stuff outside of you inspires you with the band well well with the band um i was gonna say you know my favorite thing to do in life is to be with my family i like it when my daughter comes home from school my wife gets home from work and we're all together and you know making dinner and stuff that's my favorite time of day i like the mornings when we get up and everybody's getting ready for their day and stuff but uh, as an artist, um, I love movies. Absolutely am obsessed with movies. And I have to have them on all the time in the studio. Interesting. Literally, literally all the time. The first thing I do after I unlock the door in the studio is I turn on a movie. It doesn't even matter what it is. I prefer um, you know, movies in other languages so that it, I just sort of am... Uh, getting these strange visuals yep. and uh, hearing these weird sort of poetic noises in the background of the house. And I just like that environment. That makes me feel um, inspired. You know, I get a lot of ideas just listening to the score of a movie. I don't know why, but it just put a, an image in my brain and I'll write it down. Um, but uh, I read a ton. I love reading and, you know, the most important thing that I do um, is read Joseph Campbell. I mean, for me as a, as a person, the most important thing that I do is read this guy, Joseph Campbell, who was a professor of comparative religion and mythology at Sarah Lawrence College for like about 40 years. But then he, he was also an author, and he wrote about, um, you know, the, uh, the sort of underlying truth of all mythology and religion. And to me, this is, this is bizarre, but I think people that know me and know the, the real, like, essence days that I understand, I mean, my whole life is about wondering about this strange mystery. I mean, you can really hear it in the lyrics. Um, but uh, Joseph Campbell's what, what helps me <laughs> uh, as a person, and that helps me evolve and grow and understand myself and what I'm going through. So that is, that's very important because that's reflected in the lyrics. But artistically speaking, strictly, uh, I love fiction as well. I like all things, James Joyce, Faulkner, um, reading uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance for the first time right now, oddly enough. 
Uh, and I'm loving that. Uh, my plans for this upcoming tour is to read the Divine Comedy. And uh, people say I'm nuts, but uh, my old friend Ted Alexander is telling me that it's the most inspirational book he's ever read. He was a guitar player for Thurby and Cool and There You Are. And uh, those things are what really get my mind going. You know, authors that are thinking about bigger things. Um, you know, music is a huge part of my day, too. I just, I walk inside and I'll have a movie going. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I might put the movie on mute and then put a record on. <laughs> uh, and I, I just like to have that sound and vibration and vision around me. It puts me in a good place. Um, and that's like, that's how I access my, my inner mojo. I love that. Yeah. Um, last question. Um, actually a couple, the, I know a lot of people talk about the member changes and I thought about it a lot and I was thinking, you know, (laughs) I did, I did. I really thought about it. I said, I said, I think things change. Nothing's constant and yes, they can, you know, have a band and be together and have the same people. But I liked that a band morphs and changes and there's different input and there's different energies. And I think, you know, it still saves the day to me. It's still, uh, you hear it. Um, and it's not that there are no names or no faces, but each person kind of, I mean, you've mentioned different band members along the way that have all played the part. Um, exactly. Well, and they all do. I mean, that's part of why I love being in a band and I'm not a solo artist. Yes, I write all the songs, but I don't play everything on the records. I want to hear what somebody else can contribute. You know, and uh and for me, um that's the first thing I'm looking for when I when I have somebody new come to the band is are you going to surprise me? Are you going to come up with something that I could not have come up with or would not have thought to do? And I and I love that. And so that uh, over the years, each record has, like, as you say, these different sort of influences and characters and colors. And uh, and I find that fascinating. I really enjoy it. I find it that it, it enhances the eclectic nature of the catalog. You know, each record is so different, and then it's cool that it was each record almost every single record is a different grouping of people. Yeah, it just um, and, yeah. hearing, you know, Brian's drum fills or listening to Dave's <laughs> riffs like, you know, it just Yeah, or Evans licks. Yeah, Evans exactly. Evans like are you kidding me? Like there's, there's yeah. like he's a, he's a nuts. <laughs> he's a maniac. So, yeah, I'm uh, I, I really, you know, I think I'm, it, it isn't just because you're on the phone you hear like I really have thought about that and think it is interesting that if what if it was the same members like would you have made in in Reverie or would it have been under the well, boards you know like what? I don't know yeah I'll, I'll tell you what um, we probably wouldn't have gotten that far I mean we would have just quit because so much of it is just inner turmoil within the band you know you can't get along on tour and then somebody says I don't want to do this anymore <laughs> you know and that's so much, that is so much of it. And so I think a lot of bands, they burn out really quickly. But for me, like, I'm not going to stop. So I want to make sure that I enjoy my experience. So that's why there's a lot of turnover. If things don't feel good between people, one another, you know, it's sort of, that's just kind of how, how it has to be. Yeah. No, and, and but, uh, I see it as a good thing. I, I think yeah, it is cool. I mean, 
and we get to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much for wanting to talk. I can't wait to hear it. I see.